Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. For years, ParCast has worked tirelessly to bring you an unprecedented look at history's most radical true crime events. Your support has not only allowed us to keep exploring these stories, but has driven us to keep expanding as well. So as a thank you to the ParCast listeners, I am honored to announce the release of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's available on July 12th, and you can pre-order it today at parcast.com cults. The Branch Davidians, the Ant Hill Kids, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults combs through the terrifying details never explored in any of Parcast's series before. This is a passion project only made possible by you. So we truly hope you'll enjoy it. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of suicide, sex work, drug use, and gun violence. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. In 1920s New Orleans, if you wanted a good time, you went to the French Quarter. Artists like William Faulkner and Phil Harris strolled the streets for inspiration. Young couples got lost in the latest dance craze, shaking and shimmying to immoral music in clubs and cabarets. But the real fun happened behind closed doors in the private brothels. That's where Norma Wallace made her name. She was the reigning madam of New Orleans, and she could provide you with anything you wanted. There was no shame, no judgment, as long as you were willing to pay her price. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from ParCast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. This week, our leading lady is Norma Wallace. We'll follow her journey from dime-a-dozen sex worker to the most powerful madam in New Orleans. Next week, we'll examine how Norma juggled her booming business with her string of love affairs. We'll also unravel how one romance became her undoing. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Technically, Norma Wallace was born in Mississippi in 1901, but if you asked her, she'd tell you plain and simple, New Orleans was her home. And boy, was it an exciting place to call home, even back then. Norma's parents, 20-year-old Amanda and 27-year-old Golly Badon, made the move when she was just three months old, settling in an area that's known today as Mid-City. It was about three miles from the French Quarter where all of the real action happened. I'm talking dancing, gambling, and a lot of drinking. It goes without saying that the Big Easy was filled with temptation. Unfortunately, this didn't bode well for the Badons. Both Amanda and Golly had drinking problems, and it seems what little money they made was spent at local watering holes. 
As a result, they never stayed in any place long. They constantly skipped out on landlords, leaving a trail of unpaid rent in their wake. Even when they welcomed Norma's younger brother, Elmo, into the world, nothing really changed. Well, except that there was one more mouth to feed, which meant there was that much less money to go around. On the whole, young Norma was used to her transient, impoverished life, but it didn't mean she was happy about it. Even as a little girl, she knew she was meant for more. She wanted the fancy dresses and the glittering jewels and the lemon pies. In 1909, the Badons lived near a pie shop, and the smell of fresh pastries wafted up the street and right into Norma's nose. The eight-year-old begged her mother to buy her one of the sweet treats, but pies simply weren't in the budget. At 10 cents apiece, about what you might pay for a gallon of milk today, they were far too expensive. So Norma turned to her imagination as her one indulgence. She daydreamed about strolling into the bakery, buying a pie of her own, and taking a bite out of the decadent dessert. She imagined how the lemon flavor would melt on her tongue, how the crust would crumble in her mouth. But the fantasy always left her hungry for more. <laughs> Norma resigned herself to a childhood without pastries, but there was a glimmer of hope on the horizon. At some stage, her dad took in a boarder named Mr. McCann. Now there was hardly enough room in the apartment for Norma's family as it was, but they made it work. Besides, with McCann's help, Amanda and Golly figured they could finally make rent for once. His presence was such a relief on the finances that Amanda even made her daughter a promise. When McCann paid his share the following month, Norma could finally have her lemon pie. Norma waited patiently for the next three weeks. Finally, the day before rent was due, she could hardly contain her excitement. She was practically counting down the hours until she could walk into the pie shop. But later that night, McCann excused himself to use the outdoor toilet, and he didn't come back. Eventually, Amanda figured she ought to check on him. She went outside and moments later raced back into the kitchen, she was pale and shocked, stumbling over her words. Without giving a second thought to her eight-year-old daughter nearby, she exclaimed that McCann was dead. He'd taken his own life. Norma was understandably distraught, although it wasn't McCann's death that had her so worked up. It was the fact that she was never going to get her lemon pie. According to author Chris Wiltz's book on Norma, that was the moment, the unexpected tragedy, when Norma decided that poverty was quite possibly the worst thing in the world. She was done relying on others for money, and she vowed to stop being poor. Of course, that was much easier said than done. Before we continue with Norma's psychology, please note that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. In 2017, researchers Carolyn Ratcliffe and Emma Kansian Kalish found that only 16% of persistently poor children managed to become financially successful young adults. That's likely because kids who are born into poverty face a host of hardships, like obtaining basic necessities like food and shelter. As a result, they often have less time for things like schoolwork and are more likely to drop out before they finish their education. 
After that, their chances of engaging in risky or even criminal behaviors goes up. And if they do stray onto the wrong side of the law, it's all the more likely they'll struggle to find financial success later on. Unfortunately, Norma's parents weren't much help in helping her break free from this vicious cycle. Around 1912, Golly reportedly caught Amanda in bed with another man. Enraged, he left his wife, as well as their two kids, to fend for themselves. With limited options, the poor, single mother turned to sex work in New Orleans brothels. And she didn't just go out at night to find Johns, she was reportedly gone for weeks at a time, working in a madam's house. This meant 11-year-old Norma and her six-year-old brother were often on their own. With no money, no food, no heat, and no electricity in their house. And following those trends we talked about earlier, the siblings were forced into survival mode. They both ended up dropping out of school and resorted to stealing food off the streets so they wouldn't starve. But finally, in 1913, 12-year-old Norma caught pretty much the first break she'd ever had. Her mom decided it was best to send her away to live with other relatives. It's not clear where Elmo went, but Norma ended up with her cousins in Memphis, Tennessee. For the first time, Norma was in a city where she wasn't scraping by to survive. What's more, Memphis wasn't all too different from New Orleans. Everywhere she went, Norma witnessed something new and exciting. And nothing was as fascinating as the Gayoso. It was a massive hotel with breathtaking views of the Mississippi River, elegant architectural design, and modern luxuries like indoor plumbing. It was a place for the rich and fabulous to retreat from the real world and indulge in a little fun. Or maybe a lot of fun. The steps outside of the Gayoso were filled with beautiful young women. They wore the finest clothes and sparkling jewels and draped themselves over the shoulders of well-dressed men, trying to get the gents to ask them upstairs. Norma's cousins explained to her that the women were sex workers drumming up money for their pimps and madams. Given the time period and society's complicated relationship with sex work, they probably said this in a bit of a condescending tone. After all, respectable women didn't just hustle men for money. But Norma thought they were, quote, spectacular, and an idea took root in the back of her mind. If she became a sex worker, then she could have all the finery in the world. Norma spent the next two years positively obsessed with the thought, until finally, in 1915, the 14-year-old decided to become a sex worker. We don't know exactly what that entailed. In Norma's various retelling of these events, she glossed over the parts of her story she deemed unimportant. All that mattered, at least as far as she was concerned, was that she was successful. Fortunately, the teenager had the chutzpah to make that happen. While she was never the most attractive woman in the room, her personality was captivating. At some point, she got the attention of a veterinarian named Dr. Sylvester. Norma guessed he was about 60, but his age didn't bother her. In turn, she told him she was 17, and he believed her or at least he pretended to. It was just like Norma had dreamed of. Dr. Sylvester wined and dined her at the Gayoso Hotel as a prelude to what came next. Except she wasn't quite ready for that part of the transaction. 
She knew what Sylvester expected, but that didn't mean she was actually going to sleep with him. She'd just string him along for a while. And it worked. There was something fun and refreshing about Norma that Sylvester couldn't get enough of. As he tried to woo her, he treated her to expensive dinners and bought her beautiful clothes. But after six weeks of cat and mouse, Sylvester was tired of the game. Either she slept with him or they were done. That was an easy choice. Norma got rid of him and moved right along. But her next client wasn't just some Mark. He was the man of her dreams. We don't know how they met, but when Norma was 15, she was introduced to a wealthy bootlegger named Andy Wallace. For Norma, it was love at first sight. Not only was Andy handsome, he was charming and generous too. He got her an apartment in the city. He bought her a seven-carat diamond ring. They even referred to each other as Mr. and Mrs. Wallace. And Norma loved the name as much as she loved the man. Regardless of what might happen between them, she decided that she would keep it forever. That might sound like Norma was already looking for an out, but really she was just being realistic. Andy ran with a dangerous crowd, not to mention he was always surrounded by beautiful women. She knew he couldn't be tied down. And honestly, neither could Norma. When the relationship fizzled out in 1916, she could look back with no regrets. She'd learned a lot over the last few years. She'd grown up, she was confident, and she knew she had what it took to be a great hustler. Now, with a giant diamond ring on her hand, it was time to take her brand new name home and take New Orleans by storm. Coming up, Norma sets up shop in the Big Easy. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. On behalf of ParCast, I'd like to thank you for your continued support. Your loyalty has allowed us to keep expanding even beyond podcasts. That's why I'm so thrilled to share some special news with you all, something we've never done before and made possible only because of you. On July 12th, we're releasing our first book titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. And you can pre-order it today at parcast.com cults. Those of you who've been with ParCast since the beginning know that it's a labor of love for us to bring you these powerful stories. As long as you keep listening, we keep creating. So with the benefit of years of research and insights, we've put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more, exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. You won't want to miss this book. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. That's parcast.com slash cults. Thank you again for listening. We can't wait for you to dive in. Now back to the story. In 1916, 15-year-old Norma Wallace returned home to New Orleans and went straight to the French Quarter. It was the perfect place for sex workers. Rent was cheap and the men were plentiful. 
there was also a constant stream of visitors coming into the city for business or pleasure, or maybe a little bit of both. And just like you'd find in cities like Amsterdam, you were likely to see sex workers standing in doorways, scantily clad. Sometimes they were even stark naked in the windows, beckoning men to come inside and pay them a visit. But it wasn't just the women who kept things humming along there. It was an entire ecosystem. Bartenders and taxicab drivers worked as middlemen, directing men to brothels and getting a cut of the profits in return. Unsurprisingly, Norma wanted in on this world. According to Chris Wiltz, author of The Last Madam, Norma's first stop was the Cosmopolitan Hotel. She knew plenty of sex workers operated out of there, and she planned on joining them. So she donned her best dress, made sure her assets were looking great, and strutted into the lobby. Inside, all she could see were gorgeous women. These weren't the types of sex workers who lounged in windows naked. They were high-class hustlers, decked out in diamonds and beautiful outfits. They lounged about eating and drinking to their heart's content. Norma glanced down at the diamond ring on her finger, the one she'd gotten from Andy Wallace, and smiled. She was one of these women. Well, at least that's how Norma saw it. The other women? Not so much. They told her she was too young and needed to leave. It's possible they wanted to protect the vulnerable teenager from a hard life of sex work. Then again, it's also possible they didn't want any more competition than necessary. So they told Norma to go to the brothel owned by a woman named Bertha Anderson, where she could learn how to hustle properly. Then they said she could come back to the Cosmopolitan when she was a little older. Norma did as told and trekked across town to Bertha's house. But when the madam set her eyes on Norma, she too tried to talk the teen out of the business. Norma refused to back down, and eventually Bertha relented. She agreed to take the 15-year-old under her wing. But this wasn't Memphis where Norma could pick and choose her men. If she was going to stay under Bertha's roof, she was going to have to pull her weight. Now, I can't say for sure that Norma actually engaged in sex work while she was there, but given that she was there for two years, it's certainly likely. However, it turned out that she wasn't a big fan of the setup. Don't get me wrong, there were plenty of aspects of the work that she enjoyed. The money, the attention, the glamour. But more than any of that, Norma loved being in control. She was tired of being a cog in the machine and was envious of how Bertha got to call the shots. So when Norma turned 18, she struck out on her own. She got a small apartment and recruited a few girls to work for her. And slowly but surely, men started coming to her establishment. It wasn't huge business at first, but over time, Norma's brothel started getting more and more attention. Unfortunately, this wasn't always a good thing. All brothels ran the risk of getting raided by the police, and it was Norma's job to keep her girls safe. And the more popular her place got, the more likely it was to draw the wrong kind of attention. So after two years at the same location, she knew it was time to move. It was the best way to keep off the authorities' radar. The problem was she didn't know where to go. Luckily for Norma, fate seemed to be on her side. Sometime around 1920 or 21, 
20-year-old Norma ended up at a juke joint with a group of friends. That's where she met Pete Herman, who would have been 24 or 25 years old, and the two couldn't have been more alike. They both stood at five foot two, and they were both larger than life. And just like Norma, Pete knew how to command a room. As soon as he saw Norma, he ditched his group and asked her to dance. Norma was equally smitten. It certainly didn't hurt that Pete was fabulously wealthy. As a two-time world champion boxer, he'd won nearly half a million dollars in prize money. And now he was in the process of opening up a nightclub in the French Quarter. When Pete found out Norma was looking for a new spot for her girls, he offered up the space above his lounge. He could even fix it up for her, and they could be business partners. Norma knew better than to look a gift horse in the mouth, so she moved right in, and it turned out Pete's place was the perfect place to set up shop. For starters, the club offered Norma's girls a steady stream of customers. It also provided them with a bit of protection. Instead of advertising themselves in windows like other brothels, they could linger outside Pete's lounge, coaxing men in for a drink. It was something authorities couldn't exactly arrest them for. Of course, once the men went inside, the girls, along with some of Pete's own men, always pointed them upstairs for something stiffer than a nightcap. Then, at the end of every night, Norma wrote down the names of her customers in a little black book. It was part business ledger, part insurance policy. If anyone gave her trouble, Norma had notes on all of them, and she wasn't afraid of letting them know it. That kept her clients in line. But they weren't the only wild cards Norma had to worry about. Around the same time, a new police captain came onto the scene. Theodore Ray believed in law and order above all else. Coincidentally, he'd been given the task of eradicating the brothels and was ordering arrests left and right. Obviously, Norma didn't want her business to go belly up. To outlast Captain Ray, she'd have to be more discreet than ever. That meant an end to her girls hanging around doorways. There'd be no public advertisements at all, just a word-of-mouth operation kept between those who could be trusted. Even when she laid low, Norma made a killing. In fact, by leaning into an ultra-secretive business model, she ended up attracting an even more affluent and influential clientele. And as other madams lowered their prices to try to stay afloat, Norma increased hers. This caused a slight dip in the number of clients who rolled in, but it seems her profit margins actually went up. Those who had money were more than willing to pay for discretion. Whether Norma consciously knew it or not, she was playing with the psychology of pricing. According to a 2019 study, consumers tend to use price to judge a product's quality. This is especially true when there are a lot of similar options on the market. That's because when it's difficult to differentiate between a product, the higher-priced option makes people believe they're paying for better quality. The same is true for great service. Though customer service isn't as quantifiable as pricing, a 2011 study found that 73% of respondents were willing to pay more for a better experience in choosing their merchant. And it seems Norma knew it. She catered to her better-paying customers, ensuring both discretion and a more tailored experience. 
For example, if someone wanted companionship instead of sex or something on the kinkier side like BDSM play, Norma made it happen. And doing so kept the money rolling in. We don't know how much she was pulling in at this point, but it was enough that she could give everyone a regular night off. Every Sunday, Norma and her girls closed up shop and went out to spend their hard-earned money. Sometimes they didn't make it too far and simply partied downstairs in Pete's lounge. Other nights, they ventured further into the French Quarter. Wherever they ended up, they'd drink champagne, dance the night away, and thank Norma for all she'd done for them. After just a few short years, she was living the kind of glamorous life she'd always dreamed of. She was making a fortune at work, for starters. She was also beloved by her girls, her clients, and her boyfriend, Pete. But unfortunately, when things are going that well, it usually means that trouble is just around the corner. Coming up, Norma gets in trouble with the law. Now back to the story. 22-year-old Norma Wallace was living the high life in New Orleans. But on New Year's Eve 1923, things took an unexpected turn for the worse. That night, Norma ventured out onto the packed streets of the French Quarter looking for some new Johns. As far as I can tell, this wasn't the norm, but it seems she was eager to pack the house. By her count, she just needed two more men. That's when she saw two gentlemen walking towards her. Norma likely perked up at the sight. She might have even called out to them, a little flirtatious. But as the men got closer, she tensed. These weren't tourists looking for a little side action. They were cops. Norma could have booked it out of there, but instead she stood her ground. What was the worst they could do? Well, it turned out they could arrest her. They slapped handcuffs on her right there in the middle of the street and charged her with solicitation. Although whether she actually solicited them is a matter of debate. But the police didn't care. They carted Norma off to the station downtown. There, Norma was brought in to the intake officer, along with all the other madams and sex workers who'd been rounded up that night. It was clear that police captain Theodore Ray was trying to send a message. Sex workers weren't going to get away with operating in plain sight. At least, not if he had anything to do with it. Luckily for Norma, it seems Captain Ray wasn't there that night. When it was her turn to be booked, she stepped forward and smiled. The intake officer was apparently a friend of a friend. They struck a deal on the spot, and Norma was free to go. This may have been the first time Norma was ever arrested, but it certainly wasn't the last. She was at the top of Captain Ray's list, and over the next three months, she was apprehended five more times. But no matter who was on duty, it seems Norma sweet-talked them into letting her walk. It's also possible she threatened them. After all, plenty of officers frequented her brothel, so she probably had leverage over a lot of them. Either way, one thing was clear. Norma was nigh untouchable. In fact, over the next four years, Captain Ray had her arrested at least eight more times. But ultimately, none of the charges stuck. Norma had too many friends in high places. 
too many powerful names in her little black book. Unfortunately, her boyfriend, 30-year-old Pete Herman, was no longer one of them. By 1928, the two had fallen out of love and were constantly at each other's throats. So 26-year-old Norma packed up her bags, moved out of the space above Pete's lounge, and left him for good. By this point, she had a good chunk of change to fall back on, so she went out and bought a house of her own. An added bonus of that was the freedom that came with her new address. She redecorated the place with the finest furniture and antiques she could get her hands on, doing it up beautifully. As far as brothels go, it was the nicest one in the French Quarter. It was also the one with the most beautiful girls. Around this time, she gave her roster a facelift, letting a lot of the older girls go and replacing them with the prettiest women in New Orleans. During the hiring process, she made sure the girls knew they had to abide by a strict set of rules. That's likely because Norma no longer had the cover of Pete's Lounge to distract the authorities from her business. But now, as she operated out of a house, police could easily spot a group of girls soliciting men on the streets. So Norma brought cab drivers and bartenders into the fold. If they could direct customers her way, she'd happily give them a cut. To add another level of cover, Norma claimed her property was a boarding house and paid taxes accordingly. From the outside, she wanted her house to look like a fine establishment that was on the up and up. She expected her girls to help maintain that image. Whenever they went out in public, they had to dress like proper ladies. That meant matching shoes and purses, hats and gloves, and with their hair and nails done. In exchange for their hard work and loyalty, Norma gave the girls housing, better pay than other brothels, and, most importantly, she cared about them. If a girl had a problem, Norma took care of it. That meant everything from keeping the girls out of jail to making sure none of the men frequenting the house had any STIs. In short, she controlled every aspect of her brothel. Well, just about. While she tried her best to keep her customers in check, there was always someone who got a little rowdy and broke the house rules. One night, just before Mardi Gras, a man we'll call Timothy showed up at Norma's house looking for some fun. He was incredibly wealthy, and perhaps as a result of that wealth, he just happened to be entitled and arrogant and believed he could get whatever he wanted. For him, a visit to a brothel was all about the conquest and there was no one at Norma's place more difficult to attain than the madam herself. Her position meant she didn't have to sleep with any of her clients, but Timothy wanted to be the exception. He tried bribing her with wads and wads of cash. Despite the money, Norma refused. Even still, she tried to keep him happy and pushed other girls on him. But Timothy only had eyes for Norma, so much so that he got handsy with her. At first, it was playful, but then it got aggressive. Then, after one particularly rough scuffle, he slipped and hit his head on a coin-operated music box. He was badly hurt and drifted in and out of consciousness. Norma wanted to take him to a hospital, but he refused to go. He was also too big for her and her girls to move. So eventually, Norma decided to call the police. The last thing she needed was a man dying in her living room. 
but she had to be smart. She couldn't very well tell the truth about what had happened. Doing that would be admitting to soliciting sex work. But then again, maybe she could? According to author Chris Wiltz's book, The Last Madam, Norma rounded up all the money Timothy had thrown around that night. When the police came, she handed them $2,500 in cold, hard cash. Today, that'd be more than enough to buy a nice car. Needless to say, the officers happily pocketed the money and whisked the troublemaker away. Later, when Timothy came to, he was livid. He wanted Norma arrested for swindling him out of his money. But that would mean admitting where he'd been and why. And since he couldn't bring himself to do that, he backed down, bringing the whole affair to a close. The police never said a word about it, and Norma carried on as usual. Because in the grand scheme of things, men like Timothy were small fish, stressful in the moment, but easily dealt with. There were far worse criminals who frequented Norma's house. For example, one such man strolled in in 1936. His name was Alvin Creepy Carpus, and he was a really bad guy. After committing bank and train robbery, kidnapping, and murder, he was sitting pretty atop the FBI's most wanted list. Norma recognized him immediately. As Alvin prowled around the brothel, she sat back and contemplated her options. She could pretend, like always, that she'd seen nothing. Her business model depended on her discretion. People trusted that they could come to her house and their privacy would be protected. But this was the opportunity of a lifetime. Norma knew that she could get a whole lot in exchange for turning Alvin in. And though he was generous and courteous with her girls, he was a murderer. There was justification there, if she needed it. According to a report by FBI Special Agent James Reese, motivations for becoming an informant are varied. But one common factor is that there's a sense of personal gain for the person ratting on their criminal cohorts. Mostly, this gives informants a chance to ingratiate themselves with the authorities. Norma wanted that type of relationship with the police, especially since there was a new captain in the French Quarter. George Ryer was far more agreeable than the previous captain. What's more, Ryer didn't think sex work was that big of a deal. So if she could get on his good side, she'd be setting herself up for continued success. Now, I want to be clear that there's no way to know for sure that Norma made a call that night. But some people think that she was responsible for what happened the very next day. That's when New Orleans police and the FBI surrounded an apartment on Canal Street. Someone had tipped them off about where Alvin Carpus was staying. The officers waited until he exited the building, and then they sprang into action. Considering how dangerous Alvin was, the arrest went surprisingly smoothly. After that, Norma and Captain Ryer were reportedly fast friends. Again, it's not a given that she ratted out Alvin, but it certainly seemed like he promised to look the other way while she committed her own victimless crimes. That meant Norma had free reign to do as she pleased, which made the 35-year-old the untouchable queen 
of the New Orleans underworld, and she was ready to have the time of her life. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two, where Norma's love life takes her to dangerous places. For more information on Norma Wallace, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Last Madam, A Life in the New Orleans Underworld by Chris Wiltz, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Motion. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns. With writing assistance by Jane O and Joel Callen. Fact-checking by Haley Milliken and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Hi, listeners, it's Vanessa. Exciting news, ParCast's first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them, is now available for pre-order at parcast.com cults. Thanks to your support, we've compiled years of research, insights, and a catalog of case studies to expose more about these cults and the people behind them than ever before. Details which haven't even been explored in our Cults podcast. Visit parcast.com cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them.